Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about technology, power, society, and what it means to be human in the age of information. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess. And welcome to the sixth episode of Measure Mentality. This 10-episode series is sponsored by and in collaboration with the IEEE Standards Association, a collaborative organization where innovators raise the world's standards for technology. IEEE SA enables the collaborative exploration of emerging technologies, the identification of challenges and opportunities, and the development of recommendations, solutions, and technology standards that solve market-relevant problems. Now, before we begin, we wanted to remind you all that the views and opinions of the guests of Measurementality are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers or affiliations or the views of IEEE or the IEEE Standards Association. If you're new to Measurementality, in this series, we interrogate the metrics of success in artificial intelligence by exploring the following topics. How is success measured today in artificial intelligence? What positive future can we envision with AI? And finally, what measures of success can get us to that positive future? In this episode, we interview Yoav Schlesinger about defining and measuring the impact of AI systems to improve accountability in a genuine way. Yoav is the principal of ethical AI practice at Salesforce, where he helps instantiate, embed, and scale industry-leading best practices for the responsible development, use, and deployment of AI. And now it is our pleasure to share this interview with all of you. We are on the line today for another episode of Measure Mentality with Yoav Schlesinger. Yoav, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. We're very excited to talk about our topic today, which is all about impact and accountability in AI. And we're going to start off with our question that we ask everyone, one of the three questions that we ask everyone in this series, and that is, how is success measured today in AI? And for you, this is with a lens toward impact and accountability. Well, you've asked the million dollar question. Um, I think primarily today, the impact of AI is measured in a few different ways. First is, did it go wrong, right? In sort of a reactive risk assessing kind of way, right? We look and see how did we mess up? Who did we harm? And how do we remediate that harm, right? So there's a kind of fundamentally uh, reverse engineered way of looking at impact rather than assessing positive impact as the primary metric, by and large, people are looking at, did we create harm and or did we prevent harm? I would say that's number one. Number two is business value, frankly, right? Um, AI is a growing and growing business. And therefore, the creators of AI are by and large driven by return on investment and business value, which is measured by whatever KPIs they put in place for accuracy or error rate or false positives, false negatives, right? But let's look at the performance of our models and assess how improvements to those models increases accuracy and therefore increases returns to the bottom line. Um, and I would say the third is in this strange lens that I have some challenges in digesting, right? Which is AI for social good, right? There's this notion that 
AI as deployed for general business uses versus AI applied for social good sit in different buckets and that we should measure the value of AI in terms of social good returns to humanity in socially beneficial ways separately and distinctly from how does AI impact people generally speaking, regardless of the application of AI, right? So I like to talk about rather than AI for good, AI that is good, right? Um, and ensuring that all of our AI systems are deployed in a way that's beneficial for humanity. So that's kind of how I tend to think about your question. Uh, there's certainly deeper levels of complexity underlying each of those. and likely other ways of measuring that impact and accountability too, but I, I think that's a starting point. I want to pick up on this idea of uh, AI for good. And for me, it, it follows the same line of thought of impact. And it's the, the stakeholders that you mentioned, but the impact to whom and the impact for who. Um, and the same kind of question I have about AI for good, which is who is that good for or who possibly should it be for? And then how might we measure the goodness of that good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I think that it's defined by practitioners by the domain in which the AI is deployed, rather than on whom, for whom, by whom the system is deployed, right? So we look at it domain specific in terms of environmentalism and sustainability, or in terms of health and well-being or refugees and crisis response, right? And it's domain specific. And we assume that if it's deployed in one of those domains, it is necessarily good, right? Um, and it turns out that that's not entirely the case, right? Um, you still need to design those systems in ways that incorporate the considerations of by whom, for whom, to what end? And how do we measure the impact then, regardless of the domain? I'm going to ask the same question, but from the opposite end of the spectrum, because I imagine that it's a, it's somewhat easier to attempt to measure, to define and to measure and to optimize for, quote, good. It's easier to tell when we've achieved good, but I find that it seems difficult to tell when we've achieved harm. And I'm wondering if you have an idea of how right now people define and measure for harm when it exists or when it's enacted by AI systems? Well, I don't think we do, frankly, right? I, I think that harm is measured by PR risk, right? How bad did it seem when the harm was uncovered, right? Um, or maybe that's too, uh, I don't know, too nihilistic. Um, maybe it's really more about what is the scale and magnitude of the harm, right? How many people but not the depth of the harm to individuals or communities, right? So I think it's easier to say 10,000 people were negatively impacted by this algorithm in a hospital system than it is to go deep on any one of those 10,000 people and understand the shapes and contours of the harm to them, right? Um, what's the old saying like, uh, one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic, 
that I think I have that right. Um, right. And so understanding the actual the tragedies of the harm, right? The individual harms is, I think, an area where no one has yet really gone. Still with an eye towards measurement, we have this other complex uh, term of accountability. Um, and I'm wondering how you're seeing accountability, perhaps particularly from an industry perspective, how we're seeing that being measured today. So accountability is challenging because I don't think we have clearly defined rules of the road yet in law or policy or elsewhere for how and where accountability should begin and end and whose it is, right? So if you look at the case of Salesforce, the enterprise platform in which I sit, um, our accountability is unclear in lots of cases, right? So we have different kinds of AI models we deploy. We have global models where we do all of the training of the model um, and deploy it to all of our customers. We call it a global model as a result, right? We suck in all the data, we deploy a model, and it's not customizable in any way for our customers. It's clear that any positive or negative impacts then associated with that model are ours, right, to own. We are accountable for any bias harm that's perpetuated by one of those models. But in an instance where we've kind of developed the technology or the model or the framework for our customers to bring their own data to the table, which we do not control, which we don't see, and they then deploy that system, which causes harm. Whose accountability is that, right? Um, is that ours? Is that our customers? Is that someone else's? Is it the person who put the data set together in the first place? There's no case law that's yet decided this. And until there is, I don't know that we will actually be able to determine accountability. We can sort of uh, take a stab at ownership rather than accountability, right? Like, do I own that model? Does somebody else own that model? Um, but am I accountable for it? It's a much harder question to answer because it's a moral question for now rather than a fundamentally policy or legal question. We've started to define some of the current metrics for success that exist in AI systems, including how to define and measure good, how to define and measure impact, how to define and measure accountability as it's seen today. And so I'm wondering now that maybe this is a good segue talking about these weird sticky gray areas and what doesn't exist now, but probably should with an eye towards the future, what positive future can you envision with AI in this domain of impact and accountability? I'm glad you asked that question because I think too often we, the practitioners of ethical or responsible AI and innovation talk about harm because that's the domain in which we find ourselves you know, the, the water in which we swim every day is how to think about harm, how to mitigate bias, et cetera. But we don't spend enough time talking about all of the potentially beneficial and positive impacts that AI might bring, right? So when you're thinking about the positive future, 
it's really easy for me and hopefully for others to spin up all the positive scenarios that we might see by AI realizing its potential in healthcare, in education, in sustainability, right? Again, domain specific, right? I'm, I'm um, simplifying as a result, right? Rather than talking about narrow use cases and deployments, I'm talking in generalities about domains, but when you think about drug discovery or personalized medicine or personalized learning, right? All of these um, positive futures that you can spin up where human capacity is augmented rather than replaced and where the abilities of AI far exceed human capabilities from our own cognition, right? Um, when we do that, when we see that future, I think we will also unlock better answers around accountability and impact measurement because we will not only be focusing on harm, we'll have gone beyond the point at which we find ourselves today, which is thinking about and measuring impact as impact, harmful impacts, and be able to realize the positive impacts uh, beyond just economics. Right. So today, positive impact measured by economics. In the future, hopefully, positive impact measured by increases in satisfaction and wellness, happiness, you know, and flir human flourishing. We'll be able to measure impact in terms of positive educational outcomes and uh, career development as a result. We'll be able to measure uh, positive health outcomes. How many? lives are saved? How much do we extend average life expectancy or reduce infant and maternal mortality, right? All these sort of positive metrics that we'll be able to see because of the ways we are positively deploying AI systems. I'm curious why you think that we've uh, fallen into that harm focus. Uh, is it just the fear of bad PR, um, but it does seem like we do focus the language around risk and risk management to a degree that we don't uh, focus upon perhaps more positive framings. So how did we get here? How did we get here? Uh, 30, 40 years of the development of Silicon Valley? I don't know. Um, you know, the, I think techno-optimism uh, ran into a brick wall, right, at some point where the sheen wore off for a lot of people who weren't the builders themselves necessarily, right? Um, and that those questions existed in lots of circles for a long time, right? I'm, I'm not suggesting that this is new inquiry, right? Um, and questions around power and those dynamics, who is building, who is harmed, right, have, have circulated for a long time. But in mainstream parlance and mainstream circles, what are we talking about? Maybe the last 10 years, maybe? And I think that that conversation accelerated in those last 10 years because of the proliferation of social networks that became ubiquitous, where people became aware of the impact of algorithms on their lives in a way that they were not aware of previously. 
And the harms then associated with those models and algorithms became evident. And therefore, we found ourselves honing in on the harms because people knew of the harms for the first time, right? And I say that in giant air quotes. Um, and I think that as a result, the growth of the ethical AI industry, which is a relatively new industry, has been focused on finding people who are really good at spotting risk and mitigating it because we need to kind of quash all those harms that people are worried about in credit and financing and social media algorithms and misinformation and all the harms we've identified. It's the techno-optimists who are out there still building for the positive future that I've described, right? So we, we've got techno-optimists out there driving for positive outcomes and the people like me sitting around wringing our hands and talking about all the harms that those techno-optimists are causing uh, and the bridge has yet to be, be built really between those two communities. Let's walk that bridge for a second, actually, because we're still on the second question that we ask here. We're talking about an idealistic future. Let's be techno-optimists. We'll put our techno-optimist hat on for a moment. And you mentioned that there's other things that we could ideally measure and optimize for in these systems to make them have a positive impact, like sustainability, human well-being, greater education, all these awesome lofty buzzwords. And I'm wondering if you think realistically we can actually measure for complex socio-cultural concepts like those. Well, people try. I don't know if we'll be successful, but people try. I mean, you can find today data sets on well-being, right, which incorporate many, many dimensions, right, uh, hundreds if not thousands of factors, both qualitative and quantitatively measured by people. You know, it's the like gross happiness uh, measurement that people have tried to do. Is it possible, maybe, right? So I, I don't know that those things are predictive, right? And I don't know what the ground truth for well-being and happiness is, right? Um, so it's a little bit hard to say we can measure an increase in it if we don't know what baseline is and should be or what the ground truth is, right? And probably people will not make decisions based on the impossible increase to well-being or satisfaction, right? A, a, a lending agent, a mortgage agent is unlikely to offer or not a loan to a person based on whether it will increase their satisfaction and well-being, right? So it's not actually a, a necessarily, right, like a decision point that is helpful, but if we can reverse that and say, did the decision to make that loan increase the satisfaction and well-being, then I think we're getting closer, right? We're walking that bridge. Hard to do. Uh, and I am not the person equipped to do it. Thankfully, there are people far smarter than I am who are trying to figure out ways to measure those positive impacts. Um, but that is a socio-technical question that is far beyond me. 
Well, we are on to our final question of our three questions now, and you've already alluded to this a little bit, but we like to get really specific and nitty gritty on this show, and we don't like to leave things at a high level. So I'm going to ask you to get as specific as you can when we're talking about this positive future and AI making a positive impact. What are the specific metrics for success that you think we can choose to actually realistically measure and optimize for to get us to the positive future that you envision with AI? So let me go domain by domain. Um, so let's talk about jobs, right? Uh, and the future of work or the future of workers, which is, is probably better. Uh, it's probably better framed as future of workers, right? Um, we know that we'll need farmers who know how to work with big data sets. And we'll need oncologists who are trained as roboticists and biologists trained as electrical engineers, right? We are going to require new skill sets to unlock the potential for AI. Uh, I think the latest estimate I saw is that probably 80% of the jobs that will be done in 2030 or 2035 don't exist yet, right? So how many jobs will be created? How many jobs will be augmented? Um, and how do we measure the broader opportunities for a better trained and healthier workforce? Force, right? We are probably constrained when we think only about job displacement and worry about workers being displaced by machines instead of thinking about access to relevant and appropriate new job paths and information paths, right? So I would suggest that for jobs. Um, within a singular system itself, right? So let's focus on the models and the AI systems, you know, how much improvement in accuracy is there over time? How much are we able to reduce the introduction of new bias into large language models and to reduce its environmental impact? How can we reduce error rates for historically marginalized or vulnerable populations, right? So we can look at systems and actually create lots of metrics, I think, around the system itself to understand its improvement and moving from just business value to social value as a result. Um, in the realm of, you know, um, just general life outcomes, as we were talking about, right? Is there measurable improvement in the happiness and satisfaction or life outcomes associated in, in historically marginalized communities, perhaps as a singular focus? You know, as we were talking about, it's not specific only to AI, but to incredibly complex, interconnected, intersectional systems, right? But with AI playing a major role in that, can we see market improvements in those factors? In terms of health, it, it's quote unquote easier, right? How many lives are saved? What's the increase in life expectancy? Um, maybe that's also in autonomous vehicle use, right? How many road deaths are reduced by the use of autonomous vehicles? Or how much does life expectancy extend through the use of personalized medicine? And then lastly, I think we can probably look at economic benefit. Now, of course, 
economic benefit has the potential to increase GDP for the few versus the many, right? So we need to ensure that as we're looking at economic benefit, it's equally distributed or equitably distributed. And instead of just GDP, we're also looking at metrics that measure people, planet, and profit, right? The triple bottom line, so that we're looking at the holistic hole between humans and AI, as well as the range of people, both in the bottom 99% of the world's global population and the top 1%, that those are distributed more equitably. Um, so, you know, instead of thinking about the Terminator future, how do we look at these trends as an opportunity to seek out and embrace newness, right? Creativity uh, and embrace the evolution of technology to embrace strategic and creative and uniquely human pursuits. One thing I'm reflecting on in this conversation is how measurement, even in a short amount of time, measurement in terms of success in AI and, and impact and accountability has uh, changed quickly. Um, and I'm wondering if you have a thought on as this domain or these domains in this field continues to evolve, how can we help our metrics and our measurements around success keep up uh, with how quickly that evolution is occurring? I don't actually know. I, I'm not sure I have an answer to that question. Um, technological evolution tends to outpace our uh, moral evolution. Right. And so our ability to conceptualize new ways of measuring societal impact has to extend equally. Right. Um, we will probably, I think, get left behind for a little while. Like, I don't I don't actually have great optimism that we will keep pace, um, you know, so so maybe I'm rejecting the premise of your question, essentially. Uh, but I worry, actually, that we can't. That fundamentally we can't for now, right? That our evolution technologically is outpacing our human abilities to actually measure the impacts. Um, because when you look at, you know, large systems that input trillions of parameters, which we are now on the path to doing, it's like, it's actually beyond our capacity to measure right now. Um, nobody knows how to look at all of the complexity of language models like that, uh, which use unstructured and unlabeled data. Like it's just, it's beyond us right now. We don't have the tools to do it. So we need development of new tools, new methodology, new training and systems, new educational pathways, um, new frontier exploration and mathematics and data science and engineering and research science and all sorts of other things to unlock the ability to keep pace. And as usual with these conversations, we could talk about this for so much longer, but for now we are reaching the end of our time together. So we just wanted to take a moment to thank you, Yoav, for all of the amazing work that you are doing on the ground at Salesforce to drive us towards that future that you are envisioning and that we are envisioning alongside with you. But for now, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your expertise with all of us. Thank you, it was great.
We want to thank Yoav again for this amazing conversation. And as usual for our outros for this Measure Mentality series, we are delighted to be joined by John C. Havens of the IEEE Standards Association. So John, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. And let's jump right into it. So we talked a lot about measurement and metrics and specifically things like harm and happiness. And you are one of the experts on measuring happiness, or at least you have a a lot of interesting insights you've shared in your book on this subject. So I'm curious what some of your biggest takeaways from this conversation were. Oh, thank you. Well, first of all, Yoav, um, just a shout out to him and to Kathy Baxter at Salesforce. I, I believe they're doing some of the most important work in AI ethics, especially in the B2B arena. Um, just leading stuff in terms of um, uh, disclosure, um, just really smart thinking around just transparency, accountability. So just a huge thanks to them both for the work that they're doing. I think what's really exciting for me about Yoav um, is that he knows, uh, obviously, uh, so much about corporate social responsibility, ESG metrics. You know, even if he didn't use those terms, he comes from, you know, he's in the corporate world. Uh, He's got, a, I believe, a very strong human rights background when he was with Amidiar. So it's not like he's unaware of, let's call it social innovation or social entrepreneurship, where metrics go beyond, say, standard kind of ROI or KPIs in the corporate world. Uh, what, however, I also heard, which uh, I respect, and, and you know, is he doesn't have as much experience, say, with like uh, Bhutan's gross national happiness, those metrics. And understandably, uh, and this is where I, I don't want to speak for him, but my, my, my sort of interpretation, like most people, is when you hear about even that phrase, gross national happiness, it's kind of a strange phrase, like why gross, you know, <laughs> like what, what is that bet, you know, and it's in English, the word gross can mean a couple of things. And then happiness, you know, I think I, I find it fascinating on a regular basis, understandably, that people say measuring happiness is impossible, or it's very fleeting, it's ephemeral, or it's based on a mood, or it's utterly individualistic between people. So my first, my first thought is yes, but yes and, which is in in things like measuring through psychiatric terms or mental health, you certainly can measure through an MRI or whatever. Someone's amygdala, and there's a lot of neuroscience done on, say, compassion. And you actually can see how the brain's physiology changes when someone experiences kindness or, quote, gives a kindness. So externally, one can say, I think how I just saw Jesse do something nice for Dylan. We may say that we interpret the things differently, and we can We'll talk about it and say, well, I think she meant this. And Dylan can say, well, I appreciated that. But the brain chemistry shows that all three of us experience the same thing, which is fascinating to me. Meaning I'm just watching you guys, right? Like I see Jesse hold the door open for Dylan to go into Starbucks. And for whatever reason, Dylan looks up and that seems to really, it changes the countenance of his face. And he can tell, that's really cool that that a person opened the door for me. All three of our brains the empirical science shows react in the same way and it's been attributed to kindness or compassion or altruism. So I bring that up because measuring aspects of, quote, happiness or well-being, it's been done for 20 years or more, certainly in therapeutic realms, but in social science realms and organizations like Jeffrey Sachs, his work with the, uh, the United Nations and the World Happiness Reports. My whole point here is that 
Yoav speaking about being open to these metrics in a corporate setting was really exciting for me because there's this wonderful opportunity to kind of sh- lovingly shove a couple of big uh, 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 groups together of thinkers, multiple groups, and say, hey, happiness world, and I've been trying to do this for five or 10 years. Hey, the happiness experts, come talk to the data scientists. Hey, marketers, come talk to the social scientists. Hey, neuroscience experts, with all your great empirical data, come in the room and, and let data scientists know who are hungry for this stuff that there are these empirical things to use for the stuff you're building. There then, this whole idea of well-being metrics, maybe there's going to be a new word. So it's just something like validation metrics or responsible innovation metrics. And it just becomes a de rigueur that at the front end of design, measuring things like mental health and the environment, people understand if we don't use these metrics, we're losing out on massive amounts of empirical data that will not only make our design better, and meaning it will sell more or be uh, valued because people's, you know, the end users that they can know this might improve my well-being, but also it uh, eliminates harm. And it, uh, like we've talked about on previous shows, by definition, it will it will bring in innovation. You won't use all the metrics, but bringing them in and testing them means you're going to be innovating. Well, first, John, that's very kind of you to assume that when Justin and I go to Starbucks, we hold the door open for each other and don't just rush in to get our coffee as soon as possible. Um, but I, I think first, uh, you know, it's always we've had Yoav on the show once before, uh, but it was part of a, another uh, partnership with All Tech is Human. Um, and so this was the first time that we were able to interview him. And it was uh, very exciting for me because he also comes from a religious studies background, um, which is where I'm originally coming from. And the reason why I bring that up is because I think that uh, Yoav, he's absolutely an expert in his field now, but he brings in an interdisciplinary background. Um, and I think one thing that this conversation reminded me of is that we need to be drawing from various areas from different disciplines from different voices different places in order to solve these thorny situations that we're in in terms of artificial intelligence and in terms of measurement and john i think some of the work that you have done as well in looking to other places than uh, places that we've historically gone so looking to happiness looking to this even bringing the concept of well-being into this conversation it's so important even if just to shift or to disrupt in some way how we're classically looking at it so that we can do something new in the first place. And so that was a major takeaway for me uh, from this conversation with Yoav. For the record, Dylan, I think that John said that I was the one who opened the door for you. Not not that we opened the door for each other, but it's all semantics, right? Uh, no, I, I actually really, um, I really appreciated this conversation with Yoav too, for many different reasons, and many of which have already been said. And I'm going to now put on my academic critique hat and counter a little bit of what John said before, because I am a big skeptic when it comes to measuring and optimizing for uh, some of these more subjective qualitative, human-centered metrics. And uh, I'm sure that everyone listening to this is well aware because this is one of the questions that I constantly ask our guests trying to get them to be pessimistic and they're just too dang optimistic. No, it's, it's great. I love optimism in this space. But I, I do think that it's, it's important to have a healthy dose of skepticism when attempting to measure for things like happiness or things like harm. And Yoav said a bit about this already, so I'm not going to beat a dead horse. But I do want to at least mention that as a computer scientist myself, it's really easy once you have a metric 
it's really easy to optimize for it. But the difficult part is interrogating that metric and asking yourself if it's actually a holistic and intentional measurement of the thing that we are attempting to measure. And so while it might be, uh, it might seem like a reasonable approach to measure happiness by looking at our brain chemistry, it, is it practical to imagine that every single person is attached to an MRI machine as they're using AI to actually measure their brain chemistry? Or if we both have uh, serotonin coursing through our brain and our blood and our veins, and we have these, these uh, oxytocin, happiness kinds of chemicals that are coming up, does that mean that we are experiencing the same level of happiness? These are these the subjective, non-measurable metrics that uh, are what make us so human and the things that are so complex about humanity and, and what it means to be human that, that is, it's really beautiful as a human to, to experience things that are so subjective. But it just means that when we attempt as scientists to empirically measure and make claims about those things and then quantify and optimize for those things in our technological systems, we have to be hyper intentional so that we don't accidentally cause more harm. So not in disagreement with you, John, but also just adding my my academic critical spin on it. <laughs> no, no, it's excellent. And I'll I'll critique your criticalness, if that's the right way to put it, and agree with you that, first of all, intentionality is key. But I will say that there are so many empirical studies for happiness or what's called long-term flourishing that most people just don't know about. That doesn't mean that you don't, by the way. But also that if one has an experience testing them, they're, they're I think, just as empirical and scientific as would exist now. And what you guys know from your show, and I could mention any number of the episodes that I love so much, when people say scientifically, data science-wise, we've created this algorithm to do X, and it's going to improve Y. And then you have someone like Dr. Ruha Benjamin, who you guys interviewed, still one of my favorite shows of any show, uh, not just your, your series. Um, how was that created? Were there metrics to analyze those uh, algorithms to measure people of color? Her answer, I think, is no. The algorithmic justice league, that you know, leading work as well. So I bring that up to say that empirical and science, don't get me wrong, I'm doing a yes and here with you, but there's just as much empirical science measuring, quote, happiness or well-being globally, right? Because globally, we also haven't talked about what does happiness or well-being mean for someone in Chile versus the States, for someone who's got enough money, right? There's a great movie, one of my favorite, called Happy the, the Movie. It's a documentary, which really compares, quote, uh, these things. And it's a great movie because also I think, Jesse, what you just said really beautifully is, you know, let's be empirical, right? But they show a guy in the beginning of the movie driving a rickshaw, like a, you know, a good old rickshaw. And he's wearing like shorts and I forget where he is. And there's a businessman like riding through this like sort of, you know, squalid part of a, a city or wherever it is. And I forget it, where it is, what country. And the guy's like checking his phone. And then they interview the, the rickshaw driver and they're like, what's it like driving a rickshaw? And he's smiling. He's like, well, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes people hit me with a stick, but I still, I love my job. You know, it gives me money. And they cut to his quote house. And it's like, to me, it looks like a tent. And it looks like it's again, pretty low, you know, income, whatever. And then they show him and his neighbors and they are beaming, right? They're smiling. Now, from a Maslow or whatever kind of standpoint, I'm not advocating that people should live in conditions where they don't have enough. I'm certainly not advocating that if you, you know, get hit with a stick, that's okay. But then they point out in the movie 
that the leading cause of death, I've mentioned this to you guys before, men my age, I'm 52, after heart disease, right? Heart disease has a number of factors, which can include stuff you do overeat, but can also include genetics. The second leading cause of death is suicide. And the movie has a very sad part where they show a young Japanese family where the father has taken his life because of the stress of work. There are empirical things to measure, like the fact the suicide rates are what they are. Not to get maudlin, but the point is, is that they are there. They're empirical. They mean people leave. And the opportunity, and again, I didn't mean to get all heavy on you, Justin, and be like, let me counter your point with another point. But kind of, which is to say, I think there's a lot of times where either from a money standpoint, the let's get back to business phrase can mean let's stick with what we have. I don't want to speak for you, Jess, but my interpretation sometimes in academic circles is, well, let's be empirical with whatever. But you guys are one of the main shows I go to, to not, for me, to say, well, data science is doing X. I guess that's whatever. You're the ones that have challenged some of my biggest, with your guests, some of my biggest pre-held suppositions, where empirically, you have to holistically measure, like you said, through Dr. Ruha Benjamin. Anyway, that's my only point, is that I'm hoping that this series... Uh, and then I know I've already gone over the time I told you guys and, and a couple of things with IEEE just since the Standards Association, this is, you know, the, the sponsor. There's a new standard that's coming out whenever the show comes out. It's going to be in September, October of 2021 uh, called IEEE 7000, which uses what's called value-based engineering as a front-end methodology to ask about end-user values. There it's not about happiness or well-being. It is saying, how are people maybe going to interpret what they're using? And you understand their interpretations, young people like we talked about in a previous episode. You build better. And then it links to traditional systems engineering. So it's about really kind of speaking engineer speak and data science speak. And there again, Jess, I'd agree with you. You can't just go in and use taxonomies that don't make sense to people or aren't empirical. So that's one standard. And then we've talked about 7010, the standard with well-being indicators. That does not say, hey, here's how to use these things they're scientific or whatever, it's saying there are these metrics like the Better Planet Index or the UN SDGs or the uh, Gross National Happiness. They are data laden. When you build something and you want to build like a car that you know will have a better optimization for the environment, you should use metrics that have data talking about how to improve the environment. Or if you don't, then you won't. So anyway, I did want to quote pitch as it were those standards because that's part of the work here. But say I think it's relevant to the larger well-being conversation. Um, and again, uh, I, I really appreciated what you said, Jess. So it was more of a, not a counter per se, but just like a yes and. Absolutely. And it's important in these conversations to recognize that, you know, we can be critical until the end of our days and then nothing gets built and nothing happens. And so decisions need to be made. So critique is only as helpful as it is for us to try to be more intentional and to do better, not necessarily to stop us from innovating and from doing anything in the first place, especially if these things are going to happen regardless. But for now, I think we'll pause the conversation there because as usual, we could go on forever. So for more information on today's show, please visit the episode page at radicalai.org backslash measure mentality. You can search for the series, respond to our tweets, and get involved by using the hashtag measure mentality on Twitter and other social media sites. We talked a lot about empiricism uh, in this episode, and I just want to state for the record that empirically, there have been many instances of both Jess and I holding the door open for one another, specifically at Starbucks. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. 
Thank you for your support of the Radical AI podcast and the Measure Mentality series. Don't forget to join our conversation on Twitter at Radical AI Pod. And as always, stay radical.